From the Aspen Institute, this is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. Internet streaming is growing globally in ways that traditional TV just isn't. From our desktops to our wrists, the opportunities to watch what we want, when we want, and where we want have radically impacted our habits and desires. The fall premiere season of network television gets underway this month, but with Netflix and other on-demand options, does fall TV still matter? In this talk, Ted Sarandos and Katie Couric discuss the digital disruption of traditional TV and the future of Netflix. Sarandos oversees content acquisition for Netflix. He has been there since 2000, when the company was solely a DVD subscription provider, years before streaming became a reality. He led the transformation of Netflix into an original content producer with popular releases like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. Couric has been Yahoo's global news anchor for nearly two years. Her career as a broadcast journalist spans more than three decades. Here are Ted Sarandos and Katie Couric. Hi, everyone. I'm very excited to be back here at the Ideas Festival in Aspen. I'm very excited to be having a conversation with Ted Sarandos, who's the chief content officer for uh, Netflix. I'm sure you all have heard of that. Uh, and, and so we have so much to get to, and I want to leave time for questions from the audience as well. So, Ted, um, let, me, let me start by asking about you and how you got into this crazy business because I found it so interesting that you worked at a video store in a strip mall I did. <laughs> uh, in, in your youth and and what kind of skills and how and I know you you were going to pursue a career in journalism that was my yeah my believed desire when I was a young man yeah. but but what kind of skills did you did you get as working at the video store that kind of led you on this path that you're currently on oddly almost everything you know it was like uh, you know that what says everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten? It's kind of like everything I need to know I learned in that store. What was um, the name of the store, by the Su way? Superstar Video. There's still a couple of them open in Phoenix. Oh, really? Yeah, this was 1984, like 83, 84. And you were 20, I guess, back then? Yeah, I was, in, I was a student at, at Glendale Community College, and I was writing and, and editing the newspaper, and that was my part-time job. And I, I just had this epiphany during one of those years that I was not going to be a journalist. I wasn't that good. I didn't like reading what I wrote. I mean, I, re I was re reading it and go, I go, if I didn't read this, if I didn't write this, no, I wouldn't read it either. And so, uh, but I loved interviewing and I loved the research. But the actual sit-down writing, it just wasn't, it just wasn't going to happen. I knew that. Uh, and at the time, it was my part-time job, and I really was kind of figuring out what to do. I had a scholarship offer uh, to go uh, to Northern Arizona University because I had won some awards for design, for college newspaper design. And so I figured I'd go maybe pursue something slightly different. And the guy who owned this chain of stores, um, it was in those early days of video, way before Blockbuster even, and people would pay $100 a year for the privilege of renting movies at the store. And they would drive for 25 miles to the store and rent 10 or 15 movies. It was crazy at the time. It was printing money, printing money. And he wanted some time off, and he said, I was hoping you would take things over for a little while. And I said, well, it was like perfect timing for me to figure out my next move in the world. And it was a crash course. It was film school and an MBA course all in one. Um, it was running a business without a net, uh, but the stakes were low enough that you could try to do everything. So I was doing uh, programming, marketing, lease negotiation, payroll, um, everything you do to run a small business, uh, but it wasn't mine. But you also learned a lot about it. I, I know that I read that you like to say, hey, I noticed you rented 
yes. paper moon, yeah. you might like To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. So it's so funny because now that's sort of, you know, how Netflix operates yeah. on a certain Pre -predated level. Predated the algorithms. Of, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I know you've called yourself like the original algorithm, yeah. well, right? Some, no, or some, someone some else writer did that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I did, but what was interesting was because um, the stores are empty all day, and then you do all the business in the last couple hours of the night after people got home from work. You had all day to watch everything in the store. So I literally watched everything in the store. And after a while, we got to this place where I had some of my friends that were working in the other stores, and we would call each other and say, hey, let's watch all the Carousel movies today. And we'd watch them and then call each other and talk through them. And so we really, we turned it into film school that way. And then what I find out is as people, I, I started becoming more discerning about what I was watching and why this worked and why that didn't work and could really compare things. And so when I would notice people coming into the store and they'd watch a movie and they'd like this movie, I'd say, oh, have you seen this one? Because I'd seen everything there. And, and I would always take note when they came back in, what'd you think? Oh, I like this one, I didn't like that one. And it got to the point where when the store was really busy, people would still wait for me because they wanted a suggestion. And, and really what it taught me was how powerful it was um, that this idea of making a good choice. I mean, it says a lot about, for, for, and I would ask people once in a while, like, you know, what do you care? You get home, just watch something different if you don't like it. And they say, no, no, it is like I want, there's a sense of pride that comes from picking the right movie that night for the rest of the family. Uh, there's, your time is scarce, so, you know, if you're gonna sit down for two hours and dedicate it to something, you wanna pick something good. So people really disproportionately, disproportionate to the $3 rental <laughs> valued that decision. And, and, and how did that translate into how you get people to pick films at Netflix? Because you have all these ratings, right? Yeah. That you mine, yeah. and you use those as a way to lead people right. to content that they are gonna like. Well, I met Reed Hastings, who founded Netflix in 1999. And he and I talked about Netflix almost like it is right now. Um, it was always designed to be a digital company. Um, his background is all in, uh, in code. He was a, he's an engineer. And his, his realization was that um, the, the internet was going to get faster and cheaper and that mailing DVDs, you know, in our, like we used to in early days, was just the cheapest way to move bits around. But that at the end of the day, it was going to be really a marketing play. And so we talked to him, how could this be a marketing play? And he said, well, if you think about it, back in those days, all the theaters and the studios were fighting about digital distribution and who's going to pay to retrofit theaters for digital. And he said, if, look, if it was really a game changer, no one would be fighting about who's going to pay for it. It's the cheapest thing a studio does is mail prints around. So what really costs a lot of money and is really inefficient is marketing. And if we can get taste-based merchandising, basically uh, kind of a foolproof presentation of this, you're going to love this movie, and people will take it, and you don't have to spend, you know, $65 million, this is average marketing budget for a worldwide big budget film, uh, then you could, you know, really change the P&L of every studio and network in the world. So that's, that was, so the taste base of the picking was actually at the core of the business from the beginning. I still have the DVD of 12 Angry Men that I ordered from <laughs> you <won't> Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's long overdue. Yes. But let, 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 let's, let's talk. At least you picked a good one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I can watch anything from The Office to rerun, reruns of The Office yeah. to Breakfast at Tiffany's on Netflix, but clearly you have put Netflix on the map with original content. And it was interesting for me to read how you kind of embarked on that journey and the market forces that were at work that made you think, we don't want to just be a video middleman anymore. We need to start producing our own stuff. Can you talk about that? Well, at the core of the business was we believed that almost all filmed entertainment would come to your home on the internet. 
um, not through a cable box, or you know, that the internet would just you know completely change the way people watch. And if you believe that was going to be true, there are a lot of channels you know in, on television, and there are a lot of comp there's a lot of competition for that business that you couldn't just distinguish yourself with the technology. And it's that's a it's a understatement to say just, but the technology really really works. Like when you push play on Netflix on any device in 67 countries around the world, it works. And that's really a distinguishing factor of the business. Um, the way that the user interface works, the, everything about it is fantastic, and, but it, it wouldn't be enough if everyone, because everyone would, try to, would copy those things, and everyone would get close enough. So I brought it up one day, I said, look, nobody watches NBC because the colors are better or the sound is sharper. It's, um, you know, we, we, they pick it because of the programming and the content and we should be trying to distinguish ourselves with our content as well. So the first step of that was moving from largely non-exclusive licensing of old TV shows to exclusive licensing of old TV shows, and then the next step was creating our own. But a lot of the, co the production companies and the networks, they were, they were becoming less inclined to, tell, to sell Netflix some of their material, they, weren't they, they? It was a kind of a hedge that they would. Like if you thought about it, they, they, there was no, no reason to believe that they you know, there was no evidence that they were going to stop selling or that they'd be more hesitant to. But uh, internally, they were thinking, well, it, it seems like they're going to. As soon as we get bigger or too big, then they'll want to pull back. Um, and where we see it isn't sometimes is in the different segments of programming. Um, I think, you know, our, our, our kids programming is, you know, we just won uh, the Emmy Award for the best animated programming for kids uh, for all, all Hell King Julian against the Disney Channel, against Nickelodeon, against all these guys who've been doing it for 20 years. And our, our, we'll have 30 original series for kids next year. So I think in those cases, you can see why the people who are, make their primary business in that space right. are more worried than like a broadcaster who you know, basically is trying to appeal to a lot of different people. So if we take too much of a, of a niche segment, those folks react quickly. Um, and I think in this case, that was a hedge that um, it's more valuable for us to create global brands with our original kids programming than it would be to negotiate increasing the expensive deals with networks for their old stuff. You've made a lot of waves, obviously, and, and gotten a lot of accolades for House of Cards. And that, that started in 2013, and that Doesn't was... does feel like a long time I ago know, now? I know, God, yeah. it's so weird, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, when I saw that, I was like, what? But, um, you know, you, you, you visualized this series using kind of predictive analytics and, and gut. And I'm just curious how... You, you, you took a big gamble, very expensive show, expensive. David Fincher, right? Yeah, yeah. Turned out, worked out pretty well for you all, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> um, but, but tell me sort of what goes into figuring out when a show's going to hit. Because I know you, you kind of said fans of Kevin Spacey, fans of yeah. political thrillers. You had sort of multiple Venn diagrams, right? Yeah, it was um, uh, the untutive things. Uh, Aaron Sorkin spoke last night and spoke about how difficult it was to get a show about Washington, D.C. politics on the air, even, you know, with West Wing. And it's true, there was a belief that people didn't care, and they certainly didn't care outside of the U.S. And so they were really hard to get made. So we looked at the show, I looked at, this was, it came to us, if you think about it, it was a big, huge bet. But think about how it was you know, hedged, in a way. We had David Fincher attached to direct, Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright to star. We had three really great scripts by Bo Willimon, who was, at the time that they were pitching the show to us, uh, was nominated for an Academy Award for Ides of March. Um, so this is a pretty good package. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the scripts really were phenomenal. And when you look at this all and say, well, this show really, is it about Washington? It's really about, you know, Shakespearean level 
greed and power and sex, and it could have taken, which takes place in every workplace. So it just happens to be in DC. I mean, that, there's, there's, you know, employee politics at the grocery store that could, you know, could be that intriguing if you, if, you, if you have a great director like David Fincher behind it. Um, and so, it's a, so what we did, we looked at all the data and said, you know, is David Fincher a draw? And you find out how many people have seen all David Fincher films, and they're really diverse. So, you know, it's not enough to say I like Fight Club. Almost everybody liked that movie if you like that kind of film. But he's, uh, he's done Fight Club and Social Network and um, uh, Benjamin Button. I mean, a very broad selection of movies. And if you like all of them, you could say, yeah, you're probably a Fincher fan. And Kevin Spacey, you look at his movies, and there are there people who watch a Kevin Spacey movie just because Kevin Spacey's in it. So arguably a bad Kevin Spacey movie that will perform really well with a subset of people. And by the way, it's... Um, the Big Kahuna, that's the worst Kevin Spacey movie. <laughs> and so people who even like The Big Kahuna. Uh, and, you, and you grid all these pools together and say, no, this, is a, this audience has a big show. If it's executed really well, it's going to be great. Um, but the idea is really using the data to size the audience mm -hmm. instead of trying to create the show. Is there a risk relying too much on the data? You and I were talking earlier about Seinfeld. You know, here was a comedy that NBC executives thought would never really catch fire, it was too niche, it was too Jewish, it was too New York. They yeah. wanted to kill it off multiple times. Warren Littlefield trashed it, you yeah. know, initially. Yeah. And, and you know, it, do you worry about, I mean, that analytically, I don't think would have ever been a success if you had yeah. tested it, right? Right. So would you, like, if, uh, if, if Seinfeld had come to you and said, I want to do a show, Ted, about nothing, would you have said, great? <laughs> I mean, I think it was a huge, great bet because somebody saw in Jerry Seinfeld the ability to make what Seinfeld eventually was, even if he didn't get it right out of the, right out of the, right out of the gate. Um, you can see it just played out. John Mulaney is a great, unbelievable writer. Did anyone see the John Mulaney show on Fox with Martin Short? Nope. This is why it's got One person. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Mulaney. Um, <laughs> but, it will, a, um, but the show is fantastic. He's a great writer, and the show just didn't quite click at the beginning. And there's no question if that show had four years to catch on, like the way Seinfeld did, that there would, there would be something there. But the net broadcast and network television, cable television today, just doesn't have that much time. You get three or four episodes, and if you haven't connected with the audience, you're done. I mean, it's amazing they let yeah. Seinfeld grow. Yeah. I mean, it just shows how different yeah. the network environment is today yeah. versus what it was when Seinfeld first came out. And if you look back at the old episodes, it's a very different show. I mean, his parents were cast different. I mean, the show really did evolve in those four years and became what it did. Um, a couple of years ago here, James L. Brooks talked about Mary Tyler Moore, that that show did not connect, even in his mind, until the third year. So, I mean, if you think about it, in, in today's environment, that show would never have existed. Seinfeld would have never existed. What makes a good Netflix show? I mean, what do you look for? Is it, is it buzz? Is it ratings, which you don't publicize? And yeah. I know that bugs you when the media focuses <laughs> so much on that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But do you go for, like, breaking new ground creatively? What do you, or we, big stars? Or? We really try to do all of those things. So I think there's some gap where um, the, the advertising-supported channels are focused almost, almost completely on ratings. You have to get ratings. Even great things get canceled if they don't get ratings on television. They have to sell ads. Um, premium cable like HBO and Showtime and um, more kind of go the other way, almost to the extreme, which is as long as people are, are talking about it, that's enough. Um, I think you have to do both. I think you have to make a great show that people watch, that people write about in the, in the New York Times, and that you get a big enough audience for to support the economics of it. Because otherwise, you're going to make, um, like I think that making those kind of shows, 
I don't mean those derogatory. I mean shows for smaller kind of making shows for just the coast is a pretty small business at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of make something for everybody. So we try to make the best version of whatever that thing is we're doing. So we made a show um, that just came out called Sense8. That's the Wachowskis uh, created it. Um, with, um, and it is, it's a, a science fiction show that takes place in nine cities around the world. It's a, um, it's, a head, it's a mind bender of a show where these people wake up one day and they're all in each other's heads. And they're trying to figure out, you know, why is this happening and why, what are we supposed to do with it? And they, over time, figure out how to um, learn each other's skill sets to help each other, both physically and mentally. Uh, and it's just a really fantastic show. And, I, and, I, and it is, in a way, that's like nothing you've ever seen on television before. The, 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 the cast that's in North Korea are huge stars in North Korea, but no one ever heard of them in America. The Mexican stars are huge stars in Mexico. It's a real piece of global storytelling, and it's... Um, so it is, each, is each city different in terms of the cast, or how, do, uh, how does yeah, that work? Yeah, but, but the cast appears in all of the cities. So we shot the show simultaneously. And, and by the way, not easy cities, like Reykjavik. And, uh, so, I mean, we, we did, I mean, it's a really ambitious show physically. And, and it, it doesn't follow any blueprint of any show you've ever seen before. Is that so part I want to say I do want to do that, but I want to do it well. I don't want to do it just for the sake of being hard. Uh, but we want to do, a, you know, do that, and, and so that shows you have a deep appeal to different segments. And the show, I wouldn't have guessed it, but it's very popular with younger women. And I would have guessed it because it's a sci-fi series that would have been much more towards young, older men, younger and older men. But it is uh, finding its audience really with younger women who realize this really beautiful romantic uh, love story that, that runs through it as well. Is, is sort of setting it in different cities all around the world, is that kind of in keeping with your efforts to expand globally? In other words, is yeah. the content kind of in line with your, with your business ambitions? Yes, definitely. I mean, that's why we were attracted to the show initially. Um, the show that could feel local in eight different countries. Um, and, 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 really, and it does have that global appeal to it. And I think there's been a lot of hit and miss, you know, kind of English language, European production television that just doesn't seem to, neither fish nor fowl, just doesn't work anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and this really is programming for the world. So we're, besides shows like that, we're doing a show in Mexico called uh, Club de Cuervo that's a Spanish language original series, but it will be a big deal in Mexico, but it will be a global show. It'll be available in the US, uh, uh, subtitled and dubbed in English, uh, but it will travel around the world like most television never does. Let me ask you before we talk more about sort of your business model, about sort of the, the scheduling that you came up with. And of course, you've changed the way we watch TV forever with binge watching, with releasing all the episodes in one fell swoop. I know you and Reed both compare it to a good book. Sometimes you read a couple of pages yeah. at night before you go to bed. Sometimes you stay up all night to read the book. Yeah. So um, what made you all decide that we were gonna release it all in one kit and caboodle to sound very dated and <laughs> instead of kind of doing it week by week? And is there any, is there any I'll ask you about the downside, but first tell me how you came up with that. Well, I mean, it gets talked about as this monumental change and binge watch. We, the two things are, it was a super practical decision because nothing on Netflix prior to House of Cards was not available in its full season because we did everything after it already ran on television. So the license would kick in and we'd have all 13 or 26 episodes of the show. And that's how people started watching. So when I, we looked at the watching behavior on Netflix, some people watch four episodes at a time, some people watch two, some people watch seven, nobody watched one. So that, that we ruled out one at a time. 
And, and, and so the question that we'd go back and forth, like let's do four episodes and then wait a month and then do four more. And I said, look, at, we're not gonna guess right. So let's just give it all and then we'll see how it plays out. And then it, would, it was not meant to be the template. It was just meant to see, let's see how people watch it. It's like the Lay's potato chip of TV, right? <laughs> yeah. You can't just, just, just watch one. one. Just yeah. One <laughs> so so then, then you then, decided, hey, yeah, this works. And, then and changed, this is what and, people want. And not only did it, it but on the, uh, the cosmetics of it, we fought the word binge. The, I think it may have appeared in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal first. And we were tried to convince them not to use that word binge because it sounded so negative. You know, binge and purge, all these horrible things that come with binge. And, and they ran with it anyway, and it caught fire. But now it's so, actually a positive now thing, it's a positive don't you think? Thing. I yeah, think people yeah, yeah. see binge watching as kind of fun and indulgent yeah. in a good way. In a good way. In but good what, way. what about sort of the communal experience of kind of waiting for Thursday night at 10, kind of talking about the show around the water cooler the next day, feeling like you're having a shared experience yeah. with a lot of people at the same time. I know a lot of network shows are trying to capitalize on that. If you look at Scandal and Kerry Washington is tweeting during the episode, do you feel like some of that is lost with the way you guys are, are putting out content? I, th I think, so. of course, if that's the way you want to be wrapped up in an event, um, there's a certain artificialness to the event itself anyway. Because um, you, feel, you feel like most people, you can see the um, DVR viewing and live plus three days and live plus seven day viewing of all television growing dramatically. Right. So these are people just opting away from watching it Thursday night at 8 o'clock. Um, I point out to people a lot of times, they say, what about the water cooler moment? They say, well, there are no water coolers at work anymore either. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and went out with Kid and Caboodle, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but they <laughs> but they have um, <laughs> but they have but the idea though is that people have figured out like a new behavior and a new uh, vocabulary around it like a new uh, a new etiquette like are you oh my god are you watching Orange Is the New Black yeah what episode are you on seven okay let's talk about everything that's happened so far and they just have to adapt right there's a behavior. new way of kind yeah. of sharing the experience yeah and the, the the shock I think for people was that the first episode of season two of House of Cards spoiler alert. Um, when one of the major characters gets killed very unceremoniously, uh, and people were just blown away. And it, it, we, we did a premiere at a movie theater, and the whole theater went, <gasps> I, you hear gas. I did that at home. <laughs> yeah. Reminded me and, never to like meet Lindsey Graham at a subway station. <laughs> Gives some ideas. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But anyway. He, he, took note, he was taking notes. So yeah. yeah, yeah. But, they, um, but, but even that event, like it became like a a thing that people tweeted about that night and everything that went live, but most people didn't see it happen that night. You know, far more people saw it six months later when they finally got into watching the show on their own schedule. Are you guys playing around with other sort of scheduling ideas? I know you have a show called The Ranch, and I think you're, you're putting, yeah. or you're working on a show that's not, is that? Yeah, the so it's, uh, this is with Ashton Kutcher and... Um, right. So it's, a, it's a unique for us because it's a, we our first time we're doing a multi-cam sitcom. Um, and what we're wanting to do is take advantage of the production schedule of those shows, which is much quicker than the, than the, uh, the single camera dramas, uh, to bring out the episodes more frequently. So what I wish we had done with House of Cards, if I look back at everything we did that felt pretty good, um, the one thing I would have done, did we, we gave them 26 episodes without a pilot. So that felt you know, substantially risky enough. Uh, but I really wish we had given them 30 and had gone straight into production with three tens that they would have gone 10 and then wait you know, maybe six months instead of this year wait in between episodes or mm -hmm. seasons. Because for a lot of people, they, they literally will watch the entire season of House of Cards in the first couple of days. Right. And they've got to wait a year for new episodes. 
So there's a whole concept of these seasons that's kind of, you know, it's really um, left over from linear television and the whole fall schedule and all those things. Where I think I'd like to, if you can maintain the quality and produce on a more regular, on a more steady basis so that you can bring the seasons closer together, I think consumers would love that. So we're going to try it with this because the schedules are, are the production schedules are conducive to doing, you know, 10 episodes and then let them go. Then within six months, we can get to the next 10 episodes. So it's done more like a full-time job where you work, you take three months off, you work, so... You're also doing some other interesting things, and let's kind of unpack them, as they say. With Brad Pitt, you've just paid him a big chunk of change to do a movie, Yeah. right? You've got Baz Luhrmann working on a series about yeah. hip-hop in New York, and I guess in the late 70s, early 80s, and all different yeah. kind of music forms. And you're doing a... He's directing I, right now. He's on the he's directing in New York City right now on, this, on the first episode. And you're doing uh, a show with Chelsea Handler, which I really don't even think should be called necessarily a talk show, because it's not really yeah. a talk show. So tell us about those three projects, and and why you wanted to do them, and, and because I think they enter in all different areas that you guys are expanding yeah. into. Well, uh, we'll talk movies for a minute, because uh, this is the Brad Pitt project, but the, um, the, with all the hype about, mo about television, uh, people are all, you know, this displacement of movies for TV, still about 30% of the hours that people spend watching Netflix are watching movies. But it used to be and so much higher, right? On Ken? DVD, it was almost all movies. Yeah. I mean, TV, was, TV on DVD was tiny. And then even as we, and, and only because TV was available and movies weren't in the early days of streaming, that the, the behavior started shifting. Um, but I don't, I don't think people don't want to watch movies, they don't want to watch TV. I, I do think that people want the movie windows don't really fit their lifestyles anymore. So a big movie comes out and you have to wait um, six months to get it on DVD or VOD and then wait a year, at least a year to get it on a service like Netflix where people are watching most of their movies. Mm -hmm. So the idea was how can we shorten the, you know, change like the all at once model for movies or for TV show, how can you do that for a movie? And what we found out quickly was there's no, I mean, the internet has changed the distribution of every form of entertainment except the major studio movie that still premieres in the theater only and, ha and, get, and sits off the market for months at a time while people go move on to something else and forget about it, even though you just spent $30 million marketing in the US. Um, so what I thought was, look, the only way we could move the TV model was to do it ourselves. Let's try this with film. And we, um, we're doing a series of movies, but before the end of this year, we have um, a sequel to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right, that, that Weinstein is doing. They're, the Weinstein Harvey's produced it for you, us. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, we have uh, Judd Apatow uh, produced and co-written, uh, wrote The Return of Pee Wee Herman. Right. Uh, called P uh, Big uh, Pee Wee's Holiday. You're doing um, four films with Adam Sandler, right? We're doing four films with Adam Sandler. The first one will come out this year uh, called The Ridiculous Six. It's a comedy western. Uh, and these That's are gotten films... a lot of bad press, by the way, hasn't it? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So, but I mean, it's, it's, we can talk about it if you'd no, like. No, we don't have to. Um, but, it's a, um, but, these are, but these are movies like for us. Adam Sandler is a remarkable movie brand. Uh, people love Adam Sandler movies because they love Adam Sandler. I know that's not probably Aspen Institute. <laughs> I like Adam Potter. Sandler. But, but his movies work beautifully everywhere in the world in every window. We license a 20-year-old Adam Sandler movie in the Nordics. It's a huge hit. Um, and it happens every time. So this is the data that dr drove us to make this deal with Adam which was he is a brand that is bigger than any of his films, which is really unusual. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, and we went forward, basically hit the next four big movies he does will be just for Netflix. And so, and so I know the Brad Pitt movie, so they have a simultaneous release so, on Netflix and in Yeah, theaters? so what happened when we announced Crouching Tiger, the theater owners, of course, hate this. They hate the, any disruption to that model. 
Um, and I need them to understand that we're, Netflix, and certainly not me, we're not anti-theater. We're just pro-movie. So I want movies, I want the movie experience to be the best possible for everybody. So if but you, you can understand why they would have their knickers in a twist, right? For sure, for sure. I mean, remember, go back to my <laughs> callback. Nice. Um, but, but going back to my video store days, back in those days before that store opened, I, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, in a small, just very small movie market. So if you wanted to see anything but, you know, the top movie of the year, you had there was one theater by, by Arizona State University called the Valley Art Theater that showed documentaries and foreign language movies and art house film. And you'd have to get, and I got on a bus and went across town to watch to see these movies in a theater. Now those movies are subject to the same windows as you know, Spider-Man or you know, the Avengers, um, where people are trying to figure out, you know, how do I, why do I have to wait a year to see that movie? But, so but when, it, when it comes to Netflix, if you wanted to see one of those movies, you probably would have. You would have rented it on a DVD or VOD or saw it on an airplane. You almost had to close your eyes not to see some of these movies by the time they get to us. And yet the theaters still try to maintain the premium experience by, uh, by denying people the access to the movie for three or four months after they're done with it. Mm -hmm. So it extends the value. And I think it's just a foolish way. I think the way that you need to improve the value of going to the movie theater is improve the experience. So there's an iPick theater in, in LA at Westwood. There's probably some around here um, where they have these huge, comfortable reclining seats and they serve drinks at your seat and the, the, the seats rumble when the sound's loud. I mean, it's a cool experience that we cannot replicate. And I think that that is the way the theater owners should try to make the experience better and better for consumers, not try to deny access, because that's just going to increase piracy. You know, we're, we're, everything else in our world, we can get as soon as it's available, except for a major studio movie, at any price. And, they, and that's why, and I think that's what's driving piracy out. And why, why do you think this appealed to Brad Pitt? Well, when we announced the, the Crouching Tiger deal, um, all the theater owners collectively, I mean, it's almost like a mafia, they come out and said, we're not going to book the movie. Uh, we had a deal with IMAX, and we do have a deal with IMAX to put it on some IMAX screens. This, all the major chains said, we're not going to book it. It's a TV movie. We're, at, we're, not, we're not in that business. Then we did the Adam Sandler deal, and they said, Adam Sandler's not a movie star anymore. I don't know why they get to declare people movie stars or not. Um, and then, and then that, what I, we needed was something, I think, that symbolically told consumers, this is not a TV movie. Brad mm -hmm. Pitt is one of the biggest movie stars in the world. His movies have done $6.7 billion in the box office. And his next movie is going to be only on Netflix. Um, we will put it on some screens. Yeah, because um, I, I, I saw that it would yeah. have a theatrical Yeah, and I would too. like the theaters to book these movies in theaters at the same time with Netflix, all of them, if they want to. I think and it's, on, it's, it's on us to make movies that are so good that the theaters will want to book them, and they'll feel like they missed something if they didn't. Um, our Nina Simone documentary that we just premiered this week, um, we opened simultaneously in New York and L.A. On, and on Netflix, and it did an enormous box office in New York for a single-screen you know, documentary run. So we're, um, I think that they can coexist. The experiences are different enough. And what I say is, you know, if you, if you want that big theatrical experience, the best thing on Netflix doesn't compete with that. And if you don't want to put your shoes on, uh, you, the worst thing on Netflix competes with that. <laughs> so yeah. let's, let, let's talk about the Chelsea Handler Show, because I know that you, you guys are experimenting with how you're pushing out content. Yeah. And one of the things you noticed that when it came to late night shows, a lot of people are watching it online, right? They're yeah. watching these particular moments online. So how is that informing how you're producing and distributing Chelsea's show? And, and how much are you thinking about mobile? Because a lot of people yeah. watch these bits on Fallon or Kimmel or James Corden on their, on their phones. Yeah. So the, I feel like the, the, the goal of a, of a late night talk show 
is to find, have a viral moment. And it feels like they fight, they try harder and harder to make a moment viral. <laughs> and it has to be, I think it has to be a natural Yeah, because I feel thing. like it's almost too emphasized now. And you yeah. feel like everything is, they're th thinking about everything in terms of what can be packaged for mobile later. Yeah. So you, if you, I think if you make a great hour, you're inevitably will have a great minute to be viral. But I do feel like the creative is leaning more towards that viral minute. Well, also very yeah. sticky, right? Yeah, exactly. So my thing was with, with Chelsea, she has a huge fan base that like her all for different reasons. Um, some people, I think she, I think she has a great interview skills. I think her interviews are really funny. You know, she's, I think with like Howard Stern, where people love him or hate him, he's a great interview. Um, you've been great, great on Howard Stern every time you're on. Um, and so she has a great interview that we want to preserve that part of her show. Um, the gossip, sit around the table and talk, you know, talk about Kim Kardashian, we, we're not going to do that. Um, the, she has a very funny take on current events, so we think we can make the show topical without being gossipy mm -hmm. um, by doing more filmed, uh, kind of more film segments, uh, and then also that she's a very successful stand-up comic, so we want to incorporate, you know, we want to expand on her monologue every, every, every show. So what we'll do is we'll do multiple episodes every week, and some of them will be interview heavy, some will be uh, film heavy, and some will be roundtable heavy. But not, but the gossip's what we're going to get. And out so of how things. how are you going to push those out though? Are you going to be like, are, are they going to have some kind of s sort of systematic way that they're going to be packaged and available? Are you going to just do them as they get done? Yeah. Because no, I know you've talked about I, that I think, as well. Well, we have an, another challenge, which is that because. Um, we, there's no technical reason you can't live stream, you know, shows as they come out, except for our service basically is comes, it's, a, you know, it's on demand, and it's on 700 different devices around the world, different SKUs of devices, so it has to work on all of them right away. So that means a lot of encoding work, a lot of behind the scenes prepping the files before they go live. Um, so that would prevent us just from, like, making them and dropping them. Right. In our current infrastructure, we'll, we'll keep narrowing the window and narrowing the window. I mean, it used to be... Um, weeks, you know, that kind of work. Now it's kind of days, and it eventually get down to hours, and then we'll, it'll move it even faster. Right, well, with but, stuff like Periscope and Meerkat, you yeah, know, can exactly. you see incorporating that technology into um, what you guys do, or not really? The, the, the thing I'm not, I'm trying not to emphasize the kind of liveness. I think the, what Netflix really improves the watching experience because of the on-demandness. So when you watch it on your own, and I think if we start promoting, you have to watch this now because it's live. Right. People are going to get very confused by the by the consumer proposition of it. Is I'd that... rather just watch. It. So like right, when we go live, when Orange is the New Black season three went live, that was a live event. We, we, we could just it went live at midnight that night and millions of people watched it live. So it's not like there's no technological barrier to doing it. So it was kind of a live event that way. It just was filmed for live. And it wasn't, but, but nobody felt like they had to watch it. They knew it would still be there when they woke up. Right. Uh, and it'll still be there tomorrow if they haven't started yet. Is, that, is sort of the de-emphasis de on live, is that why you're kind of staying away from sports broadcasting? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that the on-demand brings anything extra to sports. So, I mean, I think sports is great for live. People want to watch it at the same time. They want to know who won in real time. And I think, you know, de 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 delaying the delivery of sports is not a good thing. And the same thing with, kind of, with news. I think TV is really beautifully built for live events and sports and news and talk and all those things that really play out beautifully on, the live, on live television. We don't bring anything really extra to that. Let's talk about ratings. I mean, Netflix is sort of notoriously secretive. Um, why don't you release ratings of particular shows? Um, and, and is it because you're subscription-based and it really doesn't matter, ratings really don't matter that much? 
It, it, that, I mean, the practical answer is yes, it really don't matter that much. I mean, we, we want to make, we make shows that, that are built for certain segments and that that segment would see such tremendous value in it that they retain their Netflix subscription or they join Netflix just to watch it. Um, so the day of doing the, the live ratings, which is, per, you, they absolutely should give the live ratings for television because they have to sell ads. So they said, look, if, if you're buying 7 million people, I owe you the answer that we got 7 million people or not. And for us, it really doesn't matter at all. Um, so what I didn't want to do is get into a ratings race with television that really, for them, it matters, and for me, it doesn't. So it's just bragging rights at that point. Um, and I think it's actually been really horrible for television. I think it's destroyed the quality of television that a Seinfeld can't exist today because of ratings. Um, and so I think I didn't want to follow. We, we tried not to follow many of the conventions of television. I didn't want to follow the bad ones. And I think that, that overnight ratings have been a really bad one. Yeah, on the, on the other hand, it, it sort of, it, how difficult is it to not make that kind of information public? I mean, it's I'm hard. sure you guys get pressured a lot, and I'm sure talent wants to use yeah. that to, to get more money yeah. from you all to say, hey, the metrics definitely rationalize a certain salary for me or my yeah. content, right? Yeah, no, but, and, and the comeback to it all the time is that um, the show works. That's why we, we haven't gone... We've gone to second and third seasons of every show we've started, um, meaning that we've made picks, you know, we've, we're addressing the audience. So people say that's impossible, you're having hit after hit with no misses. Remember, we're not trying to, our hits aren't defined by all of America's watching this show. It's defined by, we identify this segment, are we addressing this segment at this price? And th so that's why these shows have worked really well for their segment. So whoever watches Hemlock Grove does not watch House of Cards. You know, Orange is the New Black has cut through all demographics, it's an enormous hit across all demographics. But you know, Daredevil is a, a very big hit, but it's a definitely a skews to a different audience than the others. Um, Hemlock Grove was really meant for the kind of mall crowd, uh, people who like the kind of the CW horror stuff, uh -huh. uh, and it, it's worked really well, for, you know, for three seasons in that, you know, for that audience. Um, the hard part about the ratings are, I think, why HBO, you know, probably got sucked into giving them. You want to brag when when it's good, and they've been good, and it's really hard not to talk about the numbers because they've been great. And I, what I don't want to do, though, is start a, a, a ratings war uh, where, there, where there's no reason for us to win or lose and shows will suffer because the perception that a, a show is a, is a failure because it didn't work in the first week when there's no reason. Right. It's not an economic failure if it didn't work in the first week. And, and to your earlier point, these shows can grow, evolve, and Absolutely. get better, Absolutely. right? And the audience can grow along with them, right? Absolutely. And um, they'll come along, and they will come along. And, and it's fun to watch. Like, you watch, we just brought up, all the seasons of Friends on Netflix about a year ago. And people love that show. And they love watching from season one, episode one, all the way through. And you can see how the show has evolved and changed. The storylines change. Uh, there's some jokes that really started in the first season that, are, that make the seventh season more funny. So I think having all that, I don't look at this like this episode has to work week one or we're out. Because I think a lot of people will watch that three years from now. Let, you, know, you say ratings as long as they watch things eventually. eventually, eventually. I know that you've been yeah. quoted as saying that. What about the, the su subscriber base? You know, that's not very public either, right? Like, who the kind of people who are subscribing are, are Netflix users. Yeah, we don't, um, we're pretty mainstream. In the U.S., we have 40 million subscribers. We have more than 60 around the world. And so at those numbers, you get pretty mainstream. Uh, at the, in our earliest days, we were pure internet demo you know, early adopter, tech, mail, right. um, and now it's gotten much more broad at 40 million subs. So they, our, our 
our base really represents the population. Do you, do you skew we old, young? I mean, sort we, of we run the We only sample. We don't collect when, we, when people join Netflix. We're privacy-centric. So we don't really collect a lot of demographic data on the way in. Until you merge with another company, right? Who will want that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But, yeah. but let's talk about uh, Carl Icahn, who recently unloaded his net Netflix yeah. stock. Um, he made I can still hear him, hear the, the echo of the woohoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still echoing here. Yeah. He did pretty um, well. But basically, he said the stock had peaked. And, and how, how are. What are you going to do? He said that the last time he got out, too, and he missed about $300 a share. Really? Well, yeah. so what, what are you going to do? I mean, I guess a lot of your competitors and, and I guess people who watch Wall Street wonder, what are you going to do to make more money? Because you have these huge, out, you know, you're paying so much money to people like Brad Pitt to do these great shows. And is, is the subscription model enough? Or are you going to have to do explore other avenues for growth? No, we think it is, and, and we're... Um, we're, what people see in our stock today is the potential global upside. Um, we really, you see enormous growth in our international business and our domestic business, and that you can monetize content just on pure subscription. Um, all of the other media companies are their advertising segments are shrinking, and they're more and more dependent on you know, third-party subscription, which is very difficult to manage. And the price points are getting, I think, out of control. Where you know, I think that there is a ceiling to what the typical consumer will pay for cable. Right. And, and if they're not at it, they've got to be really close. And it's, you can't just keep having growth by raising prices, uh, particularly when people are watching less and less. So our typical Netflix user you know, is paying about eight, nine, $8, $9 a month and watching a couple hours a day. So that's it, a tremendous value, and we can and we're having great success exporting that around the world. I heard one media analyst kind of suggest that you guys would make a cable play, ironically, in this era of cord cutting. Because you know a company like HBO has fewer subscribers than you guys do, but bring in a lot more money. Yeah, that I was mean, his his argument. There's a, there's a thing about internet businesses; they tend to bring equilibrium to whatever the marketplace they're in, and there's a huge amount of uh, there's a, a huge lack of equilibrium in television, where there's where people will say, this, "I'm going to pay extra for that because it has a brand that matters," but nobody ever has to quantify that. So at the, with Netflix, you'd have to quantify it. Like, I will pay an enormous amount of money for something that gets watched by an enormous number of people. And a little bit for people who watch a little bit. I can't pay a lot for things that don't get watched but have a big brand attached to it or a good name attached to it because it has to eventually prove itself, right? Right. So you can't just keep calling yourself premium and not be premium. So if you, you can command a bigger price tag if you can get more watching. So there's a meritocracy in the, in the licensing and the production of content online that doesn't necessarily always happen on television. Let's talk about um, HBO Go, powered by, by Apple with the resources of Time Warner. Um, I know that you've said the goal is becoming HBO before HBO becomes us. But, you know, it seems pretty intimidating to have them sort of really... I guess, try to be Netflix or yeah. emulate your, your business model. How concerned are you about HBO Go? It, you know, it's, it's validating, right, in a way, because it's what we said from the beginning. But after you feel validated, how concerned are you? <laughs> <laughs> so but that comment when I said, you know, we wanted to become HBO before they become us, really was that we have this great business that is direct-to-consumer, that's um, very technically difficult but works, um, that is very engineered, focused around how it works. Our DNA is, you know, you know, basically processing 
uh, having, you know, managing the relationships with 60 million plus people in 67 countries around the world, direct relationships with those, all, all of those consumers. HBO doesn't have any of those relationships. But Apple's pretty good at that, aren't they? They'll get there. We'll see. Like I said, but I, I think that they, what I said was that we, we have that and they have great programming and we need to get great at programming and before they get good at the technology. And I think they're outsourcing the technology told it gives us a little sigh of relief uh, in terms of the, the competitive challenge because it's the most important part. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, but I, I can't imagine not having Netflix and HBO. So in a way, can't they just be yeah. complementary? That's very likely the outcome, which is people are going to have multiple low-cost subscriptions. And with everything about HBO and Netflix, the one thing about it is there's not a single... The people position us as competitors, and we kind of position ourselves as competitors too. Um, but at the end of the day, there's not a single thing on Netflix that's also on HBO or vice versa. So if you love Veep, I, I can't help you. And if you love House of Cards, they can't help you. So it really is a matter of having, you know, probably people will have multiple subscriptions. And sort of um, a rising tide raising all ships in yeah. terms of the quality of, of the programs because of the competition. I, I think that's like, likely the outcome. I, I do think that there's a, a history of online companies that um, one player, maybe two, have dominant market shares. Um, so so maybe, you think, I think it's going to be the two of you? I think that's what's feeding that, that belief that it's a winner-take-all market. Because historically, like in online retailing and other things, it's felt like a winner-take-all market. Well, so what do you think? And then we're going to open well, up we have for to questions. Do is we, we have to make our shows that are so compelling that if you're an HBO subscriber, you still want to be a Netflix subscriber, or you only want to have the Netflix one. If you're going to have one, you have Netflix. Right. And, that, and, that's, been, and that's how it's been running with you know, competition from... Hulu, from Amazon, from HBO, you know, from everybody. When people are given the choice, they want they pick Netflix over HBO. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I'm just saying if they if they're looking at the uh, the direct to consumer subscriber base, and even uh -huh. our U.S. subscriber base is larger um, than right. HBO's. Right. So, and I and I think in, in growing at a much more rapid pace. So, so, so where where do you see the networks going? I mean, obviously, network uh, audiences are declining. Yeah. The advertising model is still strong, but. But I, and I know you believe it's going to be mostly big events, sporting events, yeah. live events. But how do you see the network surviving just on that alone? Well, it's, it changes the economic paradigm completely for them because those events are really expensive. And they don't have repeat you know, shelf life uh, where they're selling the library of you know, X Super Bowls or X voice episodes. Mm -hmm. So it really does change the dynamic. They have to attract big audiences. But the beauty of it is if you're primarily in the advertising business, the most valuable thing you have is scarcity. And those live events are really scarce. So the, the Super Bowl is really expensive because there's only one. And online advertising is really cheap because there's unlimited inventory. So this is the way I think the internet and the networks are kind of competing back and forth for ad dollars, that, that these, the networks have to be more and more focused for the things that the internet really can't give them, which would be scarcity. Okay, let's open it up to, because I know there's a lot of smart people in the audience, and we have, we're, we're, uh, there's the mic. I have two questions. One, I seem to remember that Netflix put out a competition f to create an algorithm to be, if you like this, you'll like that, and I'm wondering how successful you, the, the winners are in, in having uh, created that. And then secondly, as a Netflix subscriber, can you tell when I'm watching TV and if I'm binging or, I mean, do you get that information? Yeah, not at the user level. Like, we're not, we don't get down to you. We don't get that the, that the show is being watched. Um, so we, we do monitor the watching of, you know, of everything, we, you know, in terms of are people watching it? Are they turning it off in the second minute of it? 
because it actually turns out to be a more telling um, uh, gauge of success than ratings, than people rating it. So and if, you, if you turn it off in three minutes, that's a zero. <laughs> uh, and if you watch every episode in two days, that's a 10. So you so, know somebody turned it off, yeah. but you don't know Suzanne don't know you, turned it off. We don't know it's you personally. And the, uh, and the, uh, the Netflix prize was an enormous success. Uh, what we did was we, we, we thought we took our engineering as far as we could with the, uh, with the taste-based merchandising algorithms, and we put it out to the world and said, if you can top us by 10%, we'll give you a million dollars. And uh, what was cool was a, a bunch of the teams in the 11th hour got together and merged their, their, their algorithms. And no one quite got there, but there were a bunch of progress prizes that we paid out, and it definitely improved the algorithms. And we made those improvement codes available to everyone, on the, everyone online. That yeah, was a great success. Okay, so my question is, there's also a very um, real-life ambitious, ambitious political couple, the Clintons, and um, in House of Cards, is there any connection between the Underwoods and the Clintons? <laughs> well, Kevin Spacey tells a great joke. I'll spare you my bad Bill Does Clinton he and Bill Clinton are actually super very, friendly. Very good friends. And he said that, uh, um, that the show is mostly accurate, and what was really inaccurate about it was you could never pass an education bill that fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one right, right there. Um, question for both of you. Where do you think nonfiction, broadcast, and news is going, especially as we're starting to see a lot of data in the millennial group of people and other people starting to defect from TV and starting to get their information and news from Twitter and Facebook? Well, I think, I, yeah, well, I think they get it from Twitter and Facebook, but those are streaming or, you know, showing real source news like the New York Times on Twitter. So I follow a lot of news organizations on Twitter. I think sometimes you have like the rogue person who's sitting in his basement in his pajamas just opining on the news. But I think people still go to legitimate sources, in my opinion. You know, I think it's interesting to see places like Snapchat get into content. You know, they started a whole political unit. So what they do, you know, at Yahoo, we're doing a lot of original news and I'm involved in that, obviously. So, um, you know, it, it I think it's, it's just a very tumultuous time for my business, like it is for, I think, television in general or, or entertainment in general. But, um, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. But I still think people want legitimate sources, credi credible sources. And, uh, you know, I think that stylistically news is changing. I was reading today about how, how a lot of millennials think that that traditional outlets, certainly television news, has gotten too stuffy, and that's why they're gravitating to outlets like Vice and things like that because it the Daily feels, show and, yeah, yeah, The Daily Show feels more real and authentic. So I think you know, people. I think brands are still going to matter. I think it's just going. The brands are going to expand, and that some of these sort of traditional outlets are going to have to kind of become a little hipper and, and update the way they present things to make it more in keeping with how people are getting information and getting videos yeah. online. They're gonna yeah. have to incorporate, I think, those techniques and make it a little less staid, you know? And one, on the continuum, where our nonfiction focuses on documentary, documentary features and documentary series, um, that we'll probably keep pushing on that further. 
um, and as, as, the, as the kind of real-time delivery models change. I think VICE is a fascinating model. But I also um, think, to, to your point, that the documentaries are kind of the new journalism. You know, when I was growing up, they would have NBC white papers, or they would do Harvest of Shame about migrant workers, and right. I'm really dating myself. But, um, you know, now I feel like documentaries are a great place to really explore an issue and take an hour, an hour and a half, and, and present something in a way that television, you know, because you have to get such mass audience that I think that TV has gone increasingly yeah. down market, in my opinion, yeah. even news. And so documentaries, I think, are replacing this. And, you know, I have a documentary on Netflix, shameless plug, called Fed Up, which, Ted, which is getting a whole new audience on Netflix, which talks about the obesity epidemic and traces it from, the, you know, the beginning of the whole thing in the late 70s. And so to be able to have an outlet like Netflix to show an important documentary, they have, you guys, that's a very important space for you all. Yeah, definitely. And, and very, very lucrative space, I guess, is well, it? Or, I mean, it's not. Uh, it's, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, it's no, lucrative it's, because of subscriptions. It's great. And it's a great program that people otherwise would never see. The, the Nina Simone documentary called What Happened to Simone? And it just premiered Friday. And it is, um, even if you, if you know Nina Simone's music, you don't know her about her life. And, her, and the really important role she played in the civil rights movement. And when you watch this movie, it is as relevant today as it was back then. Um, her song, Baltimore, uh, which is, you know, it's crazy that, that, that we were, why we're finishing the film and the, and the events happened in Baltimore. Um, and so I think what people, I would, what I would love to see is, as news evolves, that there is a easy way to tell people about, you know, like what's that, there was a phrase like there's an app for that. Uh, there's a doc for that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when you're talking about some great big news story that you can easily steer people, if you want to know more, here's the, there's a doc for that, and here's where it's at. But I mean, I think it's revitalized the documentary business Netflix yeah. has because they well, have that, a place to show their documentaries, and they're not just kind of have a limited theatrical release, and then they're forgotten. If that movie, if the Nina Simone doc had to make movie selling, make money selling tickets and DVDs, it, would, it could never have been made. Yeah. The music rights are way too expensive. And the economics of these things are only getting more and more expensive, and the theatrical and DVD paybacks are getting smaller. So that, that industry is really uh, under siege. So we're really trying to have a great home. We, we premiered 14 original documentaries this year on Netflix. It's fantastic. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm curious about, you were talking about the subscription model as well as this departure from ratings. Um, and I'm also thinking about Orange is the New Black, which at least in my social media, along with House of Cards, is probably the most popular. Um, show among my age demographic. Um, also, Orange is the New Black, for those of you who don't watch it, has done really a lot for social awareness. Um, it's brought to people's minds uh, questions about the LGBTQ community, uh, new kind of non-heteronormative definitions of things, women's rights. It's really made people think a lot about this. So I'm just kind of curious prison about- Prison reform too, Prison right? reform, exactly. Yeah. All of these kind of mind-bending things. So I'm just curious about because Netflix doesn't really have to be as tethered to these ratings, um, is there some type of uh, social strategy or at least uh, value for social progress that Netflix will adopt? Because that certainly is incredibly important to a millennial audience in particular. Yeah, no, we put a lot of effort, and as does the, all of the cast of the show, uh, into our social efforts of uh, bringing that show, contextualizing the issues of that show in, in the rest of the world. Um, but is that something you think about, Ted, when you, 
when you look at a series, I mean, obviously, like probably Adam Sandler doesn't necessarily fill the bill on that, but there are a lot of, although, you know, I like but Adam Sandler. Fun, no, I know, and I like him, and yeah. I, I'm not saying yeah. there's not a place for him on Netflix, but yeah. is that something that you contemplate when you think, yeah. or, or is it really just quality that you look for? I'm looking for quality, and the beauty of it is I won't, you won't be disqualified <laughs> if it matters. <laughs> I mean, if you're talking about something that matters, usually that disqualifies you for, from being in the mainstream. And we try to make sure that we can couple both things that are socially relevant and really well told. But the really well told has to trump. Right. And, and then you can get an almost unlimited license to be socially relevant uh, the way I think Orange is New Because, yeah, is. no one would be paying attention to those issues if it wasn't a good show, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Thank you. Good news is that we love Netflix. The bad news is we hate our cable companies. And... I read last that week. Bad news for who? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I read last week that, uh, that 35% of all the traffic is Netflix today. And yet I was on uh, episode seven of Sense8 and in the middle of the damn show on Time Warner, I get the little round circle. What impact do you have with the cable companies since they are their, your pipeline for all your content? And is that relationship, I'm sure it's strategic, but is that getting better for the sake of your consumers? Yeah, we, I mean, basically, the, the, the migration, I think, that has to really take place, and I think ultimately will take place. The, the merger period with Time Warner and Comcast, I think, slowed down a lot of progress in ways that um, they'll catch up around. But I do think that um, the cable companies have a really great at value to you as a data company. They provide you the Internet backbone for everything you're doing in, in, on your fast broadband, and you want your broadband to work every time you want it, and they want to charge you more for it. And they can't make it worse and charge you more. So they're gonna, that, that's why I think that they'll continue to put investment in it and keep continuing. Your prices, the bad news is your price will probably go up on data and your price on, and you will disconnect from more and more video. And it's good news for them because they make more profit on data than they do on video. And it's good news for you because your overall bill goes down. So it's actually one of those rare win-win-wins for you know, consumer, the provider, uh, and for the, the channels as well. What's your value proposition to... Will, Will Beaumont and Kevin Spacey, Baz Luhrmann, uh, other than money, what, what do you tell them they can do on Netflix that they can't somewhere else? So there's a couple of things. One is we, we, don't, um, we don't develop and we don't do pilots. So um, with, with the, the real calling card for Bo and everyone was we went right to two seasons of programming. So when you know you're, there's going to be a 26th hour, the quality of the writing is very, very different than if you're writing for your life every episode and making these crazy cliffhangers to try to make the show more exciting week over week over week. And so that's, there's a creative you know, piece that comes with that that's almost, that really you can't compete with anywhere. Um, in terms of, you know, can you curse? Can you have nudity? Can you do those things? You could do those things on HBO too. So I don't think that's a, much of a trade-off. But I think the able, being able to know you're gonna, when we say yes, you get a season to make your case with the consumer. And, and, and we really do stay out of your way. So um, the, the show is really a reflection of the quality of the storytellers that we pick, not of our development process, even though we are helpful along the way. Um, and so there's a create, a, an amount of creative freedom that I don't think is afforded anybody anywhere that, they're, that they see on Netflix that they're very attracted to. If you have a fantastic show on Netflix and you've given somebody complete you know, artistic license, creative control, and yet nobody's really watching it, do you say, mm, sorry, it's over? No, I mean, relative, like uh, Hemlock Grove, we're finishing up this season. 
you know, relative to the cost of making the show, the audience wasn't, you know, it wasn't growing, and mm -hmm. the costs were. And it was, you know, then it felt like the, we'd come to a creative end with the show, and we just wrapped it up. But it wasn't like a design, like you had to hit this metric or you're going to be done. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it just felt like a very organic, you know. And when it came in, this is what you pitched, and you play, it played out, and we're done. So. So in closing, because we're out of time, but, but who do you see as you are the ultimate, Netflix is the ultimate disruptor. How, do you, how and by whom do you see yourselves being disrupted in 10 years? If you had to look into the future, obviously you don't want this to happen, Ted, but <laughs> if you were to look in the into the future, how, 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 how do you think things are going to change? What is going to be sort of the next frontier in the way people watch and consume? I, you know, I think... We have, we're, that's, we think about it all the time. I think our evolution, we did something that hardly any company ever does. We pivoted our business from being a domestic DVD by mail company to a streaming video company, from a, from a licensing company to an original content company, all the, over the course since I joined the company in uh, 2000. So it's in 15 years we've had these three incredible re lives and, and deaths and births and lives. And I think that because of that, I think we have developed an interesting a difficult to replicate skill set of being of, re of reinvention yeah. and nimble and being able to ask. So when, when we did House of Cards, the, here's the decision point. If this is wrong, we will have dramatically overspent on one show. And if it's right, we can reinvent the entire brand. I mean, everyone liked those odds. So that took people, so there was no religion around, well, wait, we don't do that. Right. And, and in fact, when I would join Netflix, I was the, even back then in the earliest days, the advice I got from one of the early founders was, um, if anyone tells you that that's the way we do things here, they're lying. Because <laughs> we don't ever do things for more than six months at a time. So, and in fact, when you gave a commencement address this year, that's what you told the kids, right? About taking risks. I did. I said someone else is going to do it if you don't. So you have to be able to take risks with your own business. So being able to basically walk away from the DVD business to do this, to work into the streaming business and to move meaningful amounts of money from the licensing business to create original content. These are all big risk plays, but we had the benefit of knowing when we got into DVD that it would have a short lifespan. So that basically we looked for people who would be, who would be willing to reinvent themselves as they came into Netflix. And almost all of my people are working in our business today. My first VP hire was Cindy Holland. She runs our original, content, our original series business right now for Netflix. And you know, I hired her in to run to be a DVD buyer. Um, so I think everyone has really had this great model of invention and reinvention that's really helped us get to where we're at today. Because I remember reading with Netflix was dead man walking, and now you guys are sort of like Reed Hastings must every day be like, "We're the man," <laughs> right? You know what? Reed is um, the I, I think one of the most brilliant uh, and humble executives on the planet. I mean, for what he's been able to do and what he's been able to keep together. Um, uh, is just unheard of. And he graciously gives credit to me at every turn. He gives credit to Neil Hunt, who runs our technology group at every turn. He is, um, he's one of these guys who really wants to win because he wants everyone to win. And it's, that's a nice person to work a for, It's a really huh? great person to work for. It was a real, that's been the, the gift of the whole, the gift of this entire experience has been the time I spent with Reed. Well, Ted Sarandos. Thank you, Ted. This is fun. It's a nice way to end it. That was Ted Sarandos and Katie Couric, recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 30th, 2015.
The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more about the festival at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow the festival at Aspen Ideas on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.